0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11 this morning. We're at Luke chapter 11. We're going to begin as we pick up where we left off uh, last week at verse 29. Follow along as I begin reading. Luke says that when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, that is, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. And when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." May God bless the reading of His Word. As we think about this passage, it becomes immediately clear that, at least according to much modern thinking, Jesus was not a master of church growth. Just this past week, I was reminded of a very famous pastor down south whose philosophy of ministry involves, quote, a laser-like focus on numbers, end quote, because in his mind, numbers show faithfulness. And apparently Jesus thought something of the opposite in his ministry. Uh, And this is not the first time we've seen this. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, we see that over and over again, when the crowds begin to swell, when there were too many people following Jesus, that's when he would start in on the hard stuff. He would start in on the hard teaching to thin out the crowds. You see, Jesus was less concerned with numbers and more concerned with sincere believers who actually knew God. So when we read chapter 11, it may be a little shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising to us when he says, uh, when Luke says, when the crowds were increasing, that Jesus turned towards them and announced, this generation is an evil generation. Now, if that were me or another preacher, you might be thinking, wow, he had a bad week. But this is Jesus. Jesus. This is no capricious or spiteful comment from a wounded ego. This is truth. This is something that we should take seriously just as they should have. And the question we have to ask is, why does he make this pronouncement? Why does he say, this generation is a wicked generation? He tells them, this generation seeks a sign it seeks for a sign and therefore it is wicked. Now notice the contrast in the following verses, all the verses that we just read. It's about how the people responded to the word of God being preached. It's a contrast between people in the past and the people of his generation and how they responded to the preaching of God's word. In fact, just before this the passage that we saw last week, Luke was telling us of an encounter that Jesus had with his own people while he's displaying the very power of God in his midst. Demons are fleeing and, and people are being healed, and yet he is being accused of being empowered by Satan himself. And he says, You're missing the kingdom that's right in front of your eyes. You're missing what is being, being put on display before you, namely the power of God. And then this woman declares spontaneously this, this word of praise, recalling how the, the blessedness of Jesus' mother for having Jesus. And remember what he says here is real blessedness. Here's the real reason why Mary was blessed. She heard the word of God. And she kept it. Now, those events and what we see here in this passage could have happened at very different times. In fact, they likely did. But Luke is not writing as a straight chronological biographer. He is is taking true events and he's putting them together to highlight the, the contrast of people and the prominence of Jesus' teaching. So it's no accident that right on the heels of Jesus saying real blessing, real blessedness with God comes from hearing the Word of God and obeying it that he shows us this time in Jesus' life where he confronts people of his own generation who refuse to hear the Word of God and obey it. Specifically, he calls them wicked for refusing to do so. Don't let that pass by you too quickly. Jesus says it is wicked for rejecting the clear teaching of God's word in favor of a sign. That's what these people are doing. They were rejecting Jesus' preaching. They were rejecting the proclamation of God's word, claiming they need something else what you're saying is great, but give us something more. Give us a sign to show you're truly a man of God, that this is truly a word from God. They think they need a sign before they will believe. And here we find even a warning for ourselves today. Are we actually listening to the word of God? Are we willing to sit under it and hear from Him, hear from God through His voice, or do we expect something else? Are we craving some sign, some miraculous display so that our faith may be encouraged in Jesus Christ. Now, on one level, that warning is especially true if you're here and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've never put your confidence, your faith, your hope in Him only to make you right with God, to find forgiveness of your sins. Will you hear the word of Christ simply and believe but on another level, this is a warning for believers as well, for there is always the danger that we grow cold in our love, our affections for Christ, and as, even as we waver in our confidence of His power and the wisdom of God's Word. The Bible can become a book that we are comfortable with, that we know something about, maybe even much about, that we only pick up every once in a while, but never really give any thought about what it means to live in light of God's Word on a daily basis in all parts of our life. As believers, we can come to expect signs and experience to drive our relationship with God and feed our faith. And Jesus is warning us against that here. So we have to ask, where are we at this morning? Are we like the ones that, that experience blessedness because they heard the word of God and kept it even Jesus' own mother? Or are we like those of Jesus' generation? How do we hear God's Word. That's what we want to be asking ourselves and and even answering. How should we hear God's Word this morning? Because I think that's what Jesus is showing us. In fact, I think He shows us that we should hear, we should listen to the Word of God in three ways. First, we should listen with repentance. We should listen with repentance. Repentance. This was something many of the crowds weren't doing when Jesus preached. When they were hearing his message, there was a wall up. There was a defensive barrier around their hearts. As Jesus says, they kept seeking a sign. Show us something to prove to us that your message is true. Now, why do they want that? Why was a sign so important to them? In truth, they didn't need a sign. They'd already been given multiple signs. They didn't need another one. Think about what the nature of Jesus' ministry. He's not just preaching the word, though he is doing that. But he is casting out demons. He is healing the the, the lame and causing the blind to see. There are signs all around them if they will simply open their eyes and see it. But therein lies the problem. It's there and they refuse to see it. They see the power of God at work and therefore the kingdom of God at hand, but they refuse to believe it. And so they say, by this excuse, that's not good enough. We we want something more. Show us a sign. In other words, Jesus, we want you to be not God's Messiah, but our Messiah. Not one after God's will and God's ways and God's intentions, but one after our wills and our ways and our intentions. Be what we want you to be, not what God has sent you to be. And Jesus will have none of that. He says, you want some kind of a sign? Why? You won't even believe the work that's going on in front of you. He says, no. Verse 29, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. I'm your sign, he says. No miraculous event. I am your sign. Look at me, hear my word, and repent. That's what you should be doing. And it's shameful that you're not. He says, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the Bible, perhaps you're not. What's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, there is a prophetic book, only four chapters called Jonah because it's about the story of Jonah, a prophet who was called to go and preach to people he didn't want to preach to. He was sent to a wicked pagan people that he thought deserved judgment. But the message he was given from God was, go and tell them if they repent, I will relent and not bring the judgment that they deserve. He didn't like that. He wanted to see them get fried. So he ran the opposite direction. He, he took off. In fact, he actually got on a boat and ran as far away as he possibly could. But eventually God got his attention. God got him turned around and Jonah actually preached the message that God wanted him to. And what happened? The whole town repented. From the king down to the lowest peasant, the entire city of Nineveh repented at the coming judgment of God. In fact, so repentant were they that did not simply put on sackcloth and ashes on themselves, but on their animals, on their pack mules, the donkeys. They load them up too because we are sorrowful for our sin and we do not want judgment to come. Now, think of the contrast here. Here in Jesus' midst are the people of God who have every spiritual advantage that you can imagine in that day. They have the law, God's direction for life. They have the prophets, those that would have applied it and called them to faithfulness. They have the temple and its sacrifices that they might be made right with God when they sin. They have the Sabbath for rest and reflection, the regular gatherings of the synagogue to hear the word of God read and explained. Of all the people in the world at that moment that should have heard the word of God preached by Jesus and turned away from their sins and repentance and faith towards God, it was them. But they refused to do it. And Jesus says that on the final day of judgment comes, there will be no excuse that there wasn't enough signs. In fact, the people of Nineveh, Gentile pagans who heard the word once and repented and off in sackcloth and ashes, they will actually be risen up and will stand and bear witness against this generation. For Jonah was just a man preaching God's word. Jesus is the promised Savior, the very Son of God who comes preaching the word. Jesus is far greater, and therefore their repentance should have been far greater. They should have listened. To the Word with repentance, this desire for a sign for, for some kind of a miracle reminds me of of some people who talk a lot about God but care very little for church and in fact care even less about the proclamation of god's Word. They care less and less about hearing the Bible speak into their life and making changes in how they should live. They fashion themselves as a spiritual people but they're actually disconnected from God's purposes or any real or tangible spiritual change. They may get excited about a story of a person who has supposedly had a near-death experience and has gone to hell or heaven and comes back and tells us of all that they supposedly saw. And they say, what a sign! God is real. But there's no change. There's no repentance. There's no difference made in their life. Again, we ask, what about us? When Jesus came preaching, the big theme that we see at the the outset was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In that message, there is good news and there is bad news, and both are essential. The part that we don't want to hear, the bad news is repent. Why? Because we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we sin. And because we sin, we deserve hell. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from this judgment. That was the first part of Jesus' preaching. Repent. Repent before God. But here's the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ in Him, in Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the reason why it is because Christ has come as the King, as the Savior who reigns over all things and will bring us into His kingdom when we repent, when we turn away from our sins and put our confidence in Him. He brings us into the shelter of His kingdom where we find refuge from God's righteous wrath and we find forgiveness of our sins. This is why we need to repent, why we need to turn away from our sins so that we can receive the mercy of God's salvation. And so when we hear the word, even today, we hear with repentance, with repentant hearts. Because every time we open the word and we allow it to speak to us and we're honest with ourselves, more sin is revealed. More sin is revealed, even as a Christian. I I was talking with a, a very young Christian and her. Her problem, her, her grief was, I feel like I'm sinning even more and more and more when I should be becoming more and more holy. And so I talked with her about this and I said, you know, the reality is as a believer who has the Spirit of God now, we should be on a upward trend of growth. That's the expectation. But here's the thing. We're also now, because of God's Spirit, more sensitive to sin. And so perhaps whereas before we weren't even aware of the sin that's taking place in our life, now it feels like suddenly we're a Christian, we should be growing, and I'm so sinful, the roots go so deep, it's not because you're sinning more, it's because now you're more aware of the sin that is there. And so therefore, I've said it so many times, but he's so right, Luther got it right. The, the, the Christian life is one of repentance, Every time we come to the word, Jesus sticks the knife in just enough to show us sin, sin. And I turn away trusting him over and over again that he will forgive us and he will guide us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So when we come to the word of God, we must listen with repentance. That's what Jesus teaches here. But we must also listen with humility. We must secondly listen with humility. Humility. With humility. Jesus says that in addition to the people of Nineveh, another would also bear witness against this generation. In verse 31, we read that the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, whether it's national treasure or an Alan Quatermain story, the idea of Solomon's wealth and wisdom has fascinated fiction writers for years. But here, Jesus is referencing a true story of someone intrigued by Israel's King Solomon back in his own day. This afternoon, you can go read 1 Kings chapter 10, the first 10 verses, and you will find the historical account of the Queen of the South that Jesus is making reference to. She was the Queen of Sheba, which is likely modern-day Ethiopia. She would have traveled great distances to verify all that she had heard about Solomon's wisdom and wealth. Now, here's the thing. We have no idea how she came to hear about this. I mean, it's not like Israel was sending out missionaries back then. But somehow news had spread. And what's more amazing, because you can imagine one kingdom to another, there's there's this guy amassing enormous wealth in the Middle East. We wanted to figure out who this guy is. He's a threat. No, no, no. More than that, First King tells us that she heard, she heard not just of wisdoms, Uh, of Solomon's wisdom, not just of his wealth, but she had heard about the things concerning the fame of the Lord's name. She had heard about Solomon's God, about Yahweh. And so she comes to see Solomon. And despite what the movies show, it's not about romance. Queen Sheba there is not to is is not there to have some dalliance or to find a husband no they're talking even more than politics all the time. King says that she goes and she sees the temple in Jerusalem that she learns of the sacrifices offered there at great cost traveling as the, as Kings tells us with a huge entourage over a great distance bringing magnificent gifts she comes seeking wisdom she comes desperately seeking out the truth about the Lord God himself and so At the end, she's found what she's looking for, and she says, blessed be Yahweh, your God. Think about how different she is in comparison to the people that Jesus is thinking of and talking about in his day. We have a queen, a pagan Gentile, yet she is desperate for God's wisdom. Here we have the Jewish covenant people of God who reject God's wisdom when they hear it. We have a queen who was astonished and blessed And blessed God because of what she saw and heard from Solomon. And on this side we have people who gripe and complain and want more. And deride Jesus though he is greater than Solomon who stands before him. We have a queen who travels afar off. Sacrifice much to hear God's wisdom. But on this side we have Jesus who came from heaven. And set aside his glory to tell them of God's wisdom and salvation. And yet they refuse to receive it. They refuse to seek God's wisdom because of the arrogance of their hearts. They are not humble. They are prideful. They think that they know all there is to know about the Scriptures and, and life with God, that they understand God's will and God's ways. They lack humility, and therefore they have no sense of desperation for God or His wisdom. Even today, we have to listen to God's Word with humility if we're going to benefit from it. We have to come prepared that our minds might be changed our ideas might be tweaked. Our faith should be deepened. In the mid-1700s, George Whitfield was a powerhouse of evangelistic zeal traveling all over England and what was known back then as the American colonies. You ever heard of that? And uh, he was given great blessing by God. Uh, thousands upon thousands were saved under Whitfield's ministry. But here's the reality. He was, this, he was this titan of an evangelist only two years after he was saved. How did that happen? How did a man who was, by his own accounts, an ordinary college student experience such a dramatic change, who came to have such facility with God's Word and to be such a powerful preacher... Whitfield himself explains it was because he humbly sought the wisdom of God in the Word of God. Pastor and biographer Stephen Lawson says this, "...Whitfield's spiritual devotion was established upon his immovable commitment to the Bible. Once he was converted, the Scripture immediately became his necessary food and fueled the fire in his soul for God. The more he immersed himself in the Bible, the deeper he grew in his dedication to know God and to advance His kingdom." the flame in his soul spread quickly, setting his newly regenerated life ablaze in a relatively short period of time. In fact, it's said that not long after his conversion, if you were to go to the town where Whitfield lived, probably the only light that would be on in the morning, a a, a physical lamp that would have had to have been lit, would have been the tiny one in Whitfield's room above a bookstore. Now that's a great place to live. His little lamp in his room above his bookstore because even as early as... Five o'clock, he was already deep into Bible study with his Bible opened on his bed, his Greek New Testament opened on his bed next to it, and Matthew Henry's commentary in the Bible opened above it. And there he was literally, physically on his knees before God's Word, praying for insight and reading and reading and reading until it yielded its treasures. He was desperate to know the truth of God's Word and experience Christ's wisdom. And he found what he was looking for. Whitfield says, speaking of those early days, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knee. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh light and power from above. See, when the queen traveled to Israel, she came ready to learn. She came wanting answers. We're told that she drilled Solomon with question after question after question after question, seeking to hear true wisdom from his God. And yet so many, as in Jesus' day, come to the Bible thinking they will stand in judgment over it, that they will sit listening to a sermon deciding whether or not truth has been spoken, whether or not the preacher gets it right. And I hope I don't ever give the impression to you when I stand behind this desk that I have all the answers because every Monday when the preparation begins, I have to come humbly before the Word knowing I need wisdom from God, lest I not understand what is before me and I have nothing to feed to you in a week. I need to let the Word humbly inform me and correct me before I can begin informing others and correcting others. I need the Word's life-giving and life-changing power. Therefore, I need to come like a man desperately in search of food. I need to come like a man desperately in search of wisdom. This is how Jesus says we should listen to His Word. We should come with repentant hearts, allowing God to speak into our lives, confronting our sins. We need to come with humility seeking God's wisdom, which we desperately need. And if we do both of those things, it reveals that we are listening with faith. This is the third thing that we see here. When we come to God's word, we must listen with faith, with faith. Now, I know verses 33 and 36 or through 36, as we read at the beginning, might seem a little intimidating at first because what Jesus is saying sounds at first pretty obscure. We get light and darkness lamps, but then he's talking about eyes and houses and we're thinking, uh, what is he talking about here? And the key is to, to latch on to that basic imagery of light and darkness. And remember, he's using it the same way that we use it, the way we use it all the time. Some of you are Uh, College students here, Uh, some of you are just in school and you can uh, perhaps sympathize if not empathize with those times when you're going to a class and perhaps it's a new lecture, perhaps it's a new class, but you're sitting there and the, 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 the professor is talking and talking and talking and you feel as if you are in the dark. You have no idea what they're talking about. It's like a foreign language. Is this Klingon? What am I listening to here? Because I don't get it. And then suddenly, what do we say? It clicks and we say, oh, the lights went on. And we begin to understand what they were talking about. Our mind put the pieces together. We begin tracking with the argument. Light and darkness, understanding or ignorance, right? In this case, also belief or disbelief. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Notice what he says, verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, for us today, candles and lamps are really uh, not much more than decorations. It's not something that we need. Uh, We all have consumers to thank for what we need. Electricity, when we flip the light switch, right? Uh, Even when the power goes out, some of us have generators. And we say, I'm not doing without electricity. And we crank those bad boys up. Or actually, I think it's push start, a lot of them now. And so we have power for the house. But you know, when I was younger, my grandparents used to set out sometimes at night uh, when we would have dinner, an oil lamp and they would turn the other lights off, and we would eat by the light of this oil lamp. Well, they didn't need to do that, but it kind of created an ambiance, right? Some of you uh, are romantics, so and when you go out for a nice meal, or perhaps you find someone to, to watch the, the kids, you sit down with your your wife or your husband, depending on who you are, and you you don't need to, but you set some candles on the dinner table, and you eat not by the bright electricity running through the walls, but by candlelight. It sets a nice romantic ambiance. But the reality is we don't need those things. In Jesus' day, they needed them. They got no electricity. They have nothing other than oil lamps and candlelight. So when the sun goes down, you're either wandering around your house, falling down into the cellar or breaking your toes on furniture unless you have a light source, namely a candle or a lamp. And that's why Jesus says it makes no sense once you light the candle, once you turn on the lamp that you would hide it. You don't put it under a bushel. No. We all know that song, right? Uh, There's a reason why we sing it that way. Nor if you want someone to be able to see when they come in the house, you don't take it down to the cellar where they can't see it. You put it out so that way the light can be seen. And here Jesus is speaking about his own ministry, his own preaching. He says, you're standing there and you're acting as if you're completely obtuse. Like you can't see what's right in front of your face. As if I'm hiding this light. He says, that's not what my ministry is about. I preach everywhere to everyone. The Word of God is not kept secret. It is not hidden away under a bushel or down under a a, a cellar. He says, I proclaim the Word openly. I stream light to the whole world. The problem is not the light that's coming from this lamp. The problem is your eyes. Are you seeing the light? Or to mix our metaphors, are you seeing what he is preaching? Are you listening with a healthy eye? Verse 34, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Do you have a healthy eye or do you have a bad eye? The word healthy here can either mean uh, clear or wide. And to be honest, it works both ways because its point is the same and the reality is Both metaphors work. When you get older, your eyes begin to get cloudy. They don't work as well. They're not healthy. They become sick and light does not penetrate as well. Likewise, if it's the middle of the night and you're, you're groggy, your eyes are closed and no light is coming in. In other words, either the, the, the eye, he means to be healthy in terms of clear and able to see clearly, or your eyes are wide open, you're alert, and you're ready to receive the information that he's given, the, 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 the word of God that he is preaching. But on the other hand, it could be closed. Closed be closed eyes, closed minded, or you could simply be sick and unhealthy and unwilling to receive God's word. Again, the metaphor works both ways. Jesus says, verse 35, be careful, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, be careful how you are looking at the word that is being preached. Be careful how you're hearing what God is saying. What difference does it make if all the light in the world is blaring and glaring and shining around you if you're blind? At that point, it does not matter if you are walking the beautiful white sandy beaches of Maui or whether you're in some closed off pit so far that light won't come down. If you are blind, it's all darkness to you. It's all darkness. And Jesus says, for some of you, you listen to the word and this is your problem. There is no light in your body. It's only darkness. You refuse to see the light. You refuse to hear what Jesus is preaching. You refuse to hear what God is saying from His Word. You refuse to believe. So again, we ask, what about us? This morning, is is, is darkness what is filling our life or light? Are we willing to believe God's Word or not? Why should we believe God's Word? Well, because just like that generation, we also have received the sign of Jonah. Do you remember that? We talked about Jonah, but we never explained what the sign was to authenticate Jesus' ministry and his message. We said that Jonah refused to obey God, that God got his attention, but we really didn't say how. God got Jonah's attention because when he went on that boat and tried to go the opposite direction, he sent a violent storm to overtake that boat. So violent, the sailors themselves, hardened by life on the sea, were scared practically out of their minds. But then they became full on panicked when they said, this storm is not natural. And Jonah said, yeah, I'm running from my God. And They said, are you insane? Why would you run from your God? And more than that, Jonah said, he's the God of heaven and earth. He's the glory of the storm and you're running away from him. Are you insane? And so Jonah says, you'll be spared if you throw me over the side. And they don't want to do that because then they're worried that his blood is on their hands and the same Lord of the storm will be angry with them. Nevertheless, they say, please forgive us. And they throw him in the drink and he begins to drown. And he goes deeper and deeper and deeper to the point that the seaweed at the bottom is beginning to wrap around his body. And he calls out to the Lord. He went down in defiance. And when the air started to get thin, he calls out for mercy. Mercy. Mercy for his sin of refusing to believe God's word, of refusing to obey God's word. And in his mercy, God, with not a slight bit of providence and humor, sends a giant fish to rescue Jonah by swallowing him up in the sea. For three days and for three nights, Jonah was safe. And at the end of that time, God makes the fish to beach and vomit up Jonah on the shore before it heads back out to continue its life. Wondering what in the world he had just eaten. But God knew what he was doing because the people of Nineveh worshipped the god of the sea represented by the fish, Dagon. And so we saw, when they saw on the beach this giant fish vomit out this man, they thought, we should listen to this guy we should listen to this man. And Jonah preached not of their false God, but of the true God and of the repentance that was necessary because of their sin and the coming judgment. And they repented. They listened and they believed the wisdom that was given to them. Now Jesus says, the same sign is going to be given to you. But remember, he says, one greater than Jonah is here. I am greater than Jonah. Jonah had a near-death experience emerging from the fish three days later. But he says, I will actually taste death for you. I will experience death. I will not be put into a fish. I'll be put into the ground, into a grave. But on the third day, I will rise again. Why? What was? What did it all mean? Why did he die on the cross? Why was he raised back from the dead on the, on the third day? Peter sums it up well in Acts 10. He's preaching to Gentiles and he says, God anointed, that is, is, he set him apart. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And Peter says, we apostles are witnesses of all that he did. In other words, what you're reading here in Luke, this is where Luke got this information, the witnesses of what Jesus did. We are witnesses of all they did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen as God's witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He really came back to life. It wasn't a ghost. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is a one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the sign to which Jonah pointed, the sign of a man who was more than a man, who was the very incarnate Son of God, who would not just have a near-death experience, but would experience death like all of us deserve under the hand of God's judgment, but who was our Savior and therefore was raised back to life. To not only authenticate the message of faith in Him, but to demonstrate what God promises for all who put their faith in Him. Not just forgiveness of sins, not just spiritual life, but real physical life forever with Him. Something greater than Jonah is here. That's why we should listen to His Word and believe. And believe. In his book on the spiritual disciplines, Donald Whitney tells of a man that he met in Kansas City, a man who had been severely injured in an explosion, leaving his face badly disfigured, causing him to lose his eyesight and the use of both of his hands. In fact, the way he tells the story, it sounds like perhaps this man's hands uh, were so damaged they had to be amputated and he didn't have them at all. This terrible accident came just shortly after this man had become a Christian. And he told Dr. Whitney that one of his greatest disappointments at that time was that he could no longer read the Bible for himself. But then he heard about a lady in England who could read Braille with her lips. Braille is, of course, books made for blind people. Instead of traditional letters, there's a series of indentations of punched up bumps, and the sensitivity of our fingers is such that you can train yourself to distinguish those bumps into letters. Likewise, the softness of our lips can distinguish as well. But when he ordered these massive Braille books of the Bible that came, he was disappointed because he discovered the nerves endings in his lips had also been damaged. He did not have the ability to distinguish between the characters. He thought he still might be able to learn it, so he kept trying, and he kept trying, and he kept trying. And one day, quite by accident, his tongue scraped across the Braille on the pages. And a flash came into his mind as He realized, I can read the Bible with my tongue. And that's what he proceeded to do. At the time that Donald Whitney had met this man, he had read through the entire Bible four times with his tongue in a Braille Bible. In light of that, in the light of this passage, my question to you is how desperate are you for God's Word? How much do you long to hear its wisdom? You see, it's not enough just to be around the Bible. It's not enough even to listen to sermons or read every once in a while. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And we must listen. We must listen and believe. And in believing, we will come to repent before God and be trained, changed by the truth of His wise words. God, that is our prayer this morning, that we would desire Your Word in part because we know it is the Word of Christ and we have this amazing sign of authenticity that you've given to us, that He not only died for our sins, but He was raised for our salvation. Father, when we think of the love and the power and the wisdom and the justice of your saving work displayed in Jesus' death and resurrection... God, we should want to hear from you, the living God. We should want to have our lives changed, coming with repentance over our sins, not just when we first believe, but daily God wanting to display our love for you by living the way that you tell us. God, of craving your wisdom for our life in this world that we might honor you with our lives. Father, we pray that even this morning we would hear this word and we would believe that it is true. We believe that it's true, not just in an abstract sense, but it is true for us. That you are speaking to us through this word. That you expect us to change in light of this word. And God, help us to remember the promise that this change doesn't come by any natural means. Anything that we can do except be willing for you and your spirit to bring about the change that is desired. So, Father, this is our prayer this morning, that we would listen to your word, whether we are reading in our beds or we are listening in the car or whether we're sitting in a Bible study or even before a man preaching behind a pulpit, God, that we would listen with repentance and humility and faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.